Hi, hello, welcome to No Show. I'm Matt Brown. I'm joined as always by Jeff Borman. Uh, and this week we're going to be talking about a monster. And that monster is called CES. It just finished uh, as of this recording, like about a day ago. And this year, as last year, was a very different year for CES. And one that I don't think CES or its organizers, uh, the Consumer Technology Association, Association is very used to. They had to shorten the schedule of it. Uh, a bunch of big time exhibitors got out of it. Google and Microsoft, Amazon, Mercedes, Meta. They all said, no, we're out. We're just going to do virtual. Uh, they had about 2,200 exhibitors. That was what I read about a week ago. That may have changed, but I think typically they have somewhere between four and 5,000 exhibitors. But they had about 2,200 this year. Of course, they had to do vaccine requirements and masking, and they had COVID-19 tests available and all that stuff. And it, it was a it was a real blow because as far as electronics go and as far as major trade shows go, CES uh, is one of the the big players and has been for thirty years. You know, it it made us kind of think a little bit: is the era of big conferences over? And not maybe not just because of COVID. Matt, I think one of the things that makes CES particularly vulnerable is the time of year it takes place. January has always been flu season, but now that the world is hyper aware of what that means, events at this time of year are at the mercy of the public's erratic sensitivities. Moving the show to a different time of year may not be possible, though, because CES is so big. It's probably on the books in Las Vegas for the next 10 years. Right? A convention of that size, that tends to be the kind of window they book in, contract in. Uh, and LVCC has no desire to move their big off-season anchor out of a downtime. But CES, again, it's so huge. The move-in and the setup for the show takes about two full weeks. They need a period of time where they have that kind of vacancy at the convention center. And Christmas and New Year's is really about the only time I think they'd, they'd find in Las Vegas where they could take the whole place over for about three weeks to put on a four-day show. First, here's kind of a primer on what CES, CES is. CES used to stand for Consumer Electronics Show. But now I think it just ex sort of exists as symbolic brand letters. And in the before time, up until 2019, the conference ran an attendance of about 180,000 people at just under 3 million square feet. It had somewhere between, as I said earlier, somewhere between four and 5,000 companies. And it would just sprawl out from the Las Vegas Convention Center like this giant buzzing octopus. And it would take over the city, it would take you know, every hotel, every hotel's exhibit space, guest suites, restaurants, clubs, everything strip adjacent and beyond would get consumed by it. And it was so big that the Vegas Commission and Visitors Authority put the lost economic impact of the 2021 conference at somewhere around $291 million. And the actual profit that's funneled back to the parent organization, you know, the CTA, it's a little bit murkier, but it's not insubstantial. ProPublica put their 19, 2019 revenue around, you know, around $138 million. So it's no small coin there. So it's a it's a big blow to a lot of people, and there are uh, there are not a lot of interest dedicated to dismantling it for sure. Certainly not. Not only is it difficult to move a show of that size in terms of times a year, uh, Vegas is probably the only place in America that can handle a show of CES's size. Orlando could make a pitch for it. In aggregate, it's got huge event spaces and more than a hundred and I think twenty thousand hotel rooms. 
but the comparison really ends there. Vegas is concentrated, right? With massive 5,000 room hotels up and down the strip. In Orlando, to get to that same count, uh, you need a 25 mile radius to accommodate that same number of attendees. The, the impact on hotel price in Vegas when these kinds of major shows come into town is, is massive as well. And in 2020, the show was running fine. COVID hadn't really hit until late February, early March. The win Las Vegas charged about $1,000 a night for rooms. And in the same weeks in 2021, those rates were 99 bucks. This is, listen, it's just supply and demand, man. Uh, Las Vegas has 150,000 hotel rooms to fill every night. And maybe there's demand for 75,000 hotel rooms to be sold on the first week of January, just through the leisure market, right? No CES. And so you're running 50% occupancy in Vegas if it's not there. There's no price competition. Uh, And the examples of win at 1,000 versus 99 bucks, when CES claims the first 100,000 rooms a night into their room block, then all of a sudden demand exceeds supply. And you've got 75,000 leisure guests who are competing for 50,000 rooms. And knowing that demand exceeds supply, rates rise. And I think all the biggest conventions feel that effect in some way. If they're big enough to alter the supply and demand of an entire city, and that's also why the smartest meeting planners put their business into markets during the off-season. Right? Don't do a meeting in Miami in February. The entire Western Hemisphere is trying to go there. Uh, do it in a hurricane season for one-third the cost and just buy the insurance on the program. That's a good point. And the number of conferences that I've been to, smaller conferences that I've been to in New Orleans in August, it's, you know, you're always wondering why are we doing this? It's 90% humidity, 98 degrees, and we're doing it because the rate at the New Orleans Convention Center was great for whatever librarian association or tax accountant association out there wants to get a conference together. The rates are really, really good. Uh, the CTA president, Gary Shapiro, who's been uh, you know, a lifer there, I think he's been there since the early 80s and kind of worked his way up. Uh, he, before the conference, was in high form on LinkedIn and in, in media. He says, quote, CES is an essential business event, which can make or break a year, especially for small and mid-sized companies. I'm hearing from many of these companies begging us to go forward. I'm emphasizing the begging. CES will and must go on. It may have big gaps on the show floor. Certainly, it will be different from previous years. It may be messy, but innovation is messy. It is risky and uncomfortable. I view CES as representing the best of our unique American history, a place where those who are different and have big ideas can gather, where success is not based on class or religion or anything but the strength of an idea. Oh, amen. I'm so inspired. You know, I, I think that captures the, the essence of the conversation you and I've been having that's been the industry has been having for 18 months now about what segment of traveler leads the recovery. And leisure has been at the forefront from the very start. Uh, events are different from pure business travel. Corporate travel is generally seen as a cost to the company. You know, I have to go to this meeting next week, or I have to go to this training seminar, right? The ROI on that, if you're the finance person at a corporate level, uh, the ROI is low if it's even possible to calculate what does it mean to go to a team meeting. Uh, whereas convention and trade shows reven- you know, generate revenue. Like Shapiro was saying, uh, not only do thousands of small businesses rely on trade show floors to see product and place the orders for their stores, but the organization putting on the show generally makes huge sums for putting it on. The NAB show is another good case in point. 
The National Association of Broadcasters is a major trade association that I actually used to work for. My office was right next to Heather's office, Heather's Jeff's wife, and that's how we all met. Um, so the you know the NAB it, it represents TV and radio stations, and they also run this hundred thousand person conference in Vegas every April that covers all kinds of media, even beyond the terrestrial broadcaster technology, and it also makes all kinds of money for the association itself. But at one point, NAB was over a hundred thousand attendees, yep. and the show generated north of eighty percent of the association's total annual revenue. This is the association model, not just NAB. You can either raise funds through membership, which is fickle. It's difficult to justify for most of your members. Uh, So instead, they put on these big shows. NAB members are broadcasters. So NAB supplies content that broadcasters find relevant. New technology in the industry, lobbying efforts that they'll lead. This brings the broadcasters to the show. Then the companies that sell products and services to broadcasters see the NAB show as a one-stop shop to hawk their wares to the whole industry. And for that, the show must go on then. These businesses do rely, uh, like Mr. Shapiro was saying, on this event taking place uh, so that they can conduct their sales for the year and their transactions, and it's important. But Matt, you've been a part of this machine from the inside. Why is the show so big? It's about scale, and I hate scale in a way. <laughs> it's become such a buzzword. We talk about our buzzwords in our listener mailbag. Everybody uses scale and it's such a depersonalizing word to use, but it's about scale. But first, let, let's just take a step back. The show itself had been an important industry event since the 60s. And it ran, I think, like twice a year. They used to do one uh, summer, one the winter. I think the, the summer one used to be Chicago. I, I might be wrong about that. I think it may have moved around a little bit. But Chicago, I seem to remember as being the summer one. At the time, it was mainly for retailers to preview and bulk order kind of the next big home entertainment devices from brands and wholesalers. But then it was also like a, like a journalist event. So, you, you know, anybody who reported on this kind of stuff, consumer, retail, holiday uh, type stuff, you get a junket to go to Chicago or Vegas. You get to go around, you get, you get to see all the, all the gadgets. In the mid-90s, that changed, I think. The acceleration of personal devices like phones, gaming, the first Madden game was actually unveiled at CS91, and home entertainment gear uh, that was absolutely fueled by CDs and DVDs, that accelerated everything. It took everything to light speed. And now major news outlets covered the show, gave the show kind of prime time space on CBS Evening News. And it became the, the, the forebearer of kind of commercialist content. Uh, which I think we see, you know, Apple really exercising, all brands do now, but it's like, you know, the the lead up and the actual presentation of the product is like some piece of content that we need to be consuming. <laughs> that 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 I think started, um, you know, with, with, with the CES presentations. So in the mid-90s, attendance ballooned and it ballooned way beyond the wholesalers and retailers and journalists and anybody, you know, else with a, with kind of a, a past interest. And it it, you know, it, it started to kind of encompass any product and any person who's a interested in what was going on there, which is a lot of people, and any product that had a chip in it, which it turned out is almost every product these days. So CES became this catch-all, this this barometer of invention and economic health and hype and appetite for trends. And thus, it started to serve many interests and became, I think, strangely, like the entertainment monoliths, it was helping to destabilize. You know, it, 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 
it, it became this one big circus for all your gadget desires. And it, along with other major trade shows, started to ascend in this way and, and repurpose themselves as the as the sort of marketplace of ideas. You, you come to network, you come to see cutting edge products, to get informative sessions, meet with sellers or buyers, and it became spectacle for spectacle's sake. There are plenty of massive conventions though, right? So we're, I don't think we're having a discussion just about CEA. SEMA, the Specialty Equipment Manufacturing Association, is 100,000 attendees every year in, at their conference in Vegas. And Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, every February, more than 100,000 attendees. ISLE, the International Science and LED Exhibition in, in Shenzhen in China, uh, right ad- just adjacent to Hong Kong, supposedly hits 250,000 attendees every it's, year. It's huge. I can't believe it. And the traditional wisdom... I think for all these shows, as they've grown and grown and grown, is that it's the best way, getting back to scale, it's the best way to scale the economic opportunity for everybody involved. For the association that's running it, it's one thing that can generate a lot of income. You can put all your eggs in the basket. It can kind of set you for the rest of the year as far as operational expenses. For the other players, like, you know, if you take a company like Bose, Bose can come, they can show off their newest speakers, all their newest gear. You can cast the biggest net, meet the most clients, get the most purchasing commitments, make the biggest splash with journalists, and you can do it all in one shot versus having a marketing, advertising staff and budget going throughout the year, doing all these kind of piecemeal things that never quite create like a big splash. At least that's the theory. And also journalists love it. You know, CES is so big and powerful that it invites, I think, relatively little, little uh, critical coverage in traditional tech media. Oftentimes, the the criticism on Twitter is so diffuse it just kind of evaporates within days. Early January, the holiday season's over. This is shiny content in a very slow post-holiday news cycle. You know, you as you were describing the evolution of. CES in the 90s, it reminded me a bit of the Detroit Auto Show. It used to be where the dealers came, you know, where auto parts manufacturers would come and see what the new designs were going to be in the prototypes of the future. Now it's a retail show. And you're right. My father-in-law goes to the show every year with, with his grandson because they want to go check out all the new cool cars. But I have an opinion on this, but I think you were going down this path. I want to hear your thoughts first. Do you think shows like this then need a size restriction? You always load the idea of kind of putting like you cannot go over this cap because the minute you put a cap on anything, and I think sports salaries are you know a great example of this, everybody who is around that cap from fan to player to owner is looking for a way to subvert the cap. (laughs) They are now looking at it as a boundary that you need to cross. So if you said we can't have for health reasons, more than 80,000 people in a conference, the, the, the sole goal of everyone involved would be to go past that number and figure out a way to break through and make a splash that way. So no, I, I don't think they need a size restriction. I do think there are ways to mediate it. Do we need to go back to two shows a year? I know that's more organizational work for everybody, but two smaller shows. I mean, given the way that product releases go anyway, you know, we, we don't just live in a, in a space where 
oh, all of our products come out in January and you have to place your orders for Christmas 2022 or whatever the whatever the case may be, whatever the buying pattern may be. I feel like the way modern retail functions, that timetable feels a little bit outdated. So why not think about doing two or three shows during the year, almost like the magic show, which happens in Vegas, which is massive. I, I so I think that's a way to do it. I think I think they could maybe take a page from South by Southwest. South by does the you know they do the universal ticket, which everybody can can you know obviously purchase. And you can go to all events. You can go to every movie and every tech thing and every music thing. But then they they really splice it out so that if you just want the music ticket or if you just want the film ticket, purchase that, and then you're kind of on a separate track. So for instance, you know Vegas, and they they sort of do this a little bit with with, with some of the way that they split it up, but. You know, say new tech could live not so much in a convention center, but it could live in a cluster of hotels downtown or audio could live at Mandalay Bay. You could have a bunch of smaller shows within one big, you know, one, one under one big umbrella so that you sort of limit your exposure to everybody and you you limit the amount of, you know, just hassle that it takes kind of making your way through 100, 180,000 people. Coming back to a model like that, I think it could be advantageous. And of course, there's one very famous organization that did that in the 90s and 2000s. They don't do it anymore, but CES used to run concurrent with the Adult Video News Awards. It was the big porn convention that would happen every year around the same time. They did that very purposefully, even though it was not affiliated with, with CES. It was this kind of little separate thing that existed by it and I think had some some relative success for a few years doing that. I'm not saying other people need to be pursuing the extremes that the AVAN went to, but uh, I think there there's something about that kind of pin show model that I like. Right. As soon as some local ordinance says that no more than... 50,000 people at the convention center at any one time, uh, there will be, like you described, a satellite event for 20,000 booked separately down the street at the Venetian. And, you know, there'll be a 30,000 person meeting at a group of three hotels in North Vegas. And the market will always win. And if they police that out, you know, they if, if the governing authority figured that out and said, oh, wait, 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 you're getting around the rules and they get tighter, the whole event's just going to move to Texas or some business-friendly state. Last year, look what happened to the bowl games during the first winter of COVID. California said no games. Did the NCAA cancel the Rose Bowl? No. They moved it to Texas, right? They weren't going to lose the hundreds of million, uh, millions of dollars they get in sponsorship and attendance. Uh, the economics is always going to win. And trying to fight against that current, swim against that current is really just a waste of time to me. And the worst sin like in that model, let's say you have the 50,000 cap. It's like, okay, CS can't be more than 50,000 people. And you have another conference that sprouts up down the street. That means money that is not going into the organizer's pockets. You know, the appetite for small to mid-sized companies to continue to spend money on this thing to me is, is very questionable. You know, when you do flights and hotels and cabs and meals, it's very easy, um, even as an attendee to just drop somewhere between three and $5,000 to go check it out for a couple of days. I know that sounds high, but, you know, given the rates that they charge and all the expenses to kind of go to and from, you know, even with, a, I think a relatively modest ticket price, I think the, the ticket price to go is somewhere in the hundreds. It can, you know, can really add up. And, you know, when you're exhibiting, 
that's when you start playing with real money, uh, depending on how big your booth is and how many people you're sending. It's it's very easy to drop tens of thousands of dollars on even a modest booth experience on the show floor. And you throw advertising or sponsored parties into that, and that's double or triple or quadruple. I mean, it can get into six, you know, well into six figures uh, for a lot of these companies, if not, if not more for some of the major, major players. Sure. But I mean, if the ROI wasn't there, those small companies that are dropping those seemingly large sums for a small company, if they weren't getting the ROI, they'd have stopped going long ago. I agree with that, I I think. And then you and I also know a lot of companies and a lot of industries that keep doing something because they feel like they have to do it. And you know, then they wake up 10 or 20 years later and it's like, wow, why do we just spend $20 million on all that? And nobody can really have the right answer to it. And it, you wonder, you know, just in general with like these big shows, like, are they going to be, are they essentially dinosaurs? You know, has, has the meteor already hit between health and between uh, business expenses and kind of the way that we do business now? Um has the meteor hit and are they going to kind of survive for a little while longer? Uh, you know, thinking that everything is, is okay, but it's really not like the convention center. I think you mentioned something like uh, adjacent to this earlier. It currently has about 45 trade shows with at least 5,000 attendees scheduled for the rest of the year. So it's a healthy schedule. It's a robust schedule. We'll see if Omicron kind of messes with that, but you know, for the immediate future, it's like we need to rebuild and get back to where we once belonged. The next two years could be the best in the history of conventions and events. Nashville, one of the best convention cities in America, is booked solid all of 2022. I heard from a friend that 22, there are only two open patterns that can even fit an event the whole year, right? They're basically packing three years of conventions into 22, right? Because Two, you know, three quarters of 2020 got canceled. All of 2021, most pretty much got canceled. So all those bookings that got canceled, plus the ones that are already going to happen for 22, they're all crammed in. So the outlook in, is very strong for 22 and 23. After that point, I think that a back to 19 level and a normalized growth 2-3% annually is pretty realistic. But as far as the dinosaur thing goes, I think actually the they're going to thrive in the very short term. And the long-term outlook for group conventions, to me, it's there has to be a replacement for it, both the economics and the experience. And there's one doesn't exist yet. To see how important live interaction is, just look at Saturday Night Live. It's in its 47th or 48th season, and it's terrible when the cast isn't working together in person or with a live audience for the performance. These are the funniest people alive. And they have admittedly, they hate their work. They hate their product when it's forced to be performed via video, right? Big live in-person events aren't going away. They're just too necessary as temporary marketplaces and for meaningful connections between people. You just can't replace it. There's not an alternative. You're right. The one thing that won't happen is immediate extinction. CS will hang on to the Moore's Moore business model as long as it can. And it's going to kind of follow the path of, of you know other dinosaurs like broadcast television and film studios and bookstore chains and other content giants who once owned an outrageous slice of the market until they didn't, you know, until it kind of petered out and tastes kind of moved on and, and, and our, our patterns moved on as, as people. 
And yeah, going smaller and more intimate is seen as sort of a retreat for right now. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that'll always be the case. At least for the next five to ten years, they're going to be they're going to be with us. As always, at the end of every episode, I have a question of the week. Jeff has not heard this question. Jeff, what's your favorite restaurant in Las Vegas? I don't think it's there anymore. Mesa Grill. And I'm embarrassed to say that because it's a Bobby Flay restaurant. Yes. I used to work above a Mesa Grill on Fifth Avenue in New York. Yes. I, you know, Bobby Flay has made a career out of nothing more than salt and pepper. It's It gives me hope that someday my, my celebrity culinary uh, adventure can actually happen. Right? Listen to, watch Bobby Flay when you do like Boy Meets Grill. Uh, you salt the steak. Salt, pepper, put it on the grill. You're done. And he's right. But how he made a career out of it, it's amazing. Somehow, nonetheless, Mesa Grill has a special place in my heart. Uh, have you ever been to the Pepper Mill? I have. There's, it's actually uh, the ownership group. There's a casino up in Reno. But in Vegas, it's just a restaurant. But oh, what a restaurant. It's like this crazy purple and pink neon diner with an incredible bar in the back with round fire pits and oh, the just great service and anybody looking for a true Vegas experience, uh, the pepper mill will deliver. No doubt. And it, and if you don't like it, it's right around the corner from Benny Hawk. Jeff, as always, it's been a pleasure and I will talk to you soon. Thank you. <laughs>